Episode 97, Bob Hiles' Moon Bounce Experiment with NASA. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. Bob Heil is a sound engineer and has been an amateur radio operator since the 1950s. In addition to working on live stage shows for some of the rock legends, including Grateful Dead, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Dolly Parton. His first job was playing the organ in a four-star restaurant called Schneidhorst, where in around 1962 he bumped into America's first astronaut, Alan Shepard. What emerged out of this encounter was an unexpected moon bounce experiment that involved Bob at his home in Illinois. Receiving a phone call from NASA in Houston, he patched the phone call through his radio and pointed his 128-element array antenna to the moon. The reflection was picked up by a receiver directly by NASA in Houston. This was in the early 1960s, and Bob never quite understood why NASA had asked for his involvement. It would have been very easy for NASA to conduct this experiment without it. Bob has that rare combination of being a great storyteller and having great stories to tell. The time we have today, one of the things I know I'm going to be disappointed with is we won't be able to cover everything I will want to talk about. But I want to focus about um, the decade of the 1960s. That's the year of uh, the space race, Yuri Gagarin and Neil Armstrong. Let's start off with um, the early days. When you were a teenager, you were an accomplished theatre organ player. But at that time, this is the early 50s, what was your ambition? What did you want to do in the way of a career at that time? Oh, I started out uh, with uh, playing the organ in 1952. I was 12 years old. And um, my parents uh, had bought me a Hammond organ, one of the B3s, and they were $2,500 <clears throat> in those days. That was a lot of money, but and they weren't wealthy people. But um, they thought I should have that because I'd been playing accordion for a couple of years. <clears throat> and um, when I started playing that organ, it, I went crazy. I was, I don't know how they stood it, but <laughs> I'd, I'd uh, play or practice three, four hours a day when I'd come home from school. And, and shortly after that, I was 14 years old. I got a job playing in a restaurant and it was really wonderful. I I was making quite a bit of money as a 14-year-old kid uh, playing the Hammond organ because um, that was the thing in those days. <clears throat> Practically every restaurant uh, of any account would have a Hammond organist or some kind of musician. But then at the same time, <clears throat> in, in 1956, I uh, one of my high school chums uh, turned me on to ham radio. And oh, my goodness, it went crazy from there. <clears throat> well, eventually I uh, became a ham. I was uh, 16 years old and, and it was <clears throat> it was a wonderful time. Uh, I was a technician for 17 years because there <laughs> the bands were open all the time. I, I was on six meters for, for all these years. <clears throat> I didn't work any low, low frequency. I was all interested in the uh, VHF and UHF and uh, the uh, 
the entire thing about the radio was I, I, I love to build. <clears throat> I learned that you could build things really easy. And uh, so I started building things. Uh, I hadn't been on the air and been a ham for just a few weeks. And I had read an article in the uh, QST magazine about a, a small transmitter. And it, uh, it was a 2E26 and uh, on six meters. And I built it and it worked. I went, whoa. So I, I was off and running as far as ham radio and building. And this really has been the basis of my entire life is amateur radio. Again, at that same time, I was uh, summoned to uh, play at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. My teacher, who was the organist there, <clears throat> he needed some help. Uh, to not only substitute, but he needed help to voice and tune the pipes. That organ had not been played in over 20 years. And there were uh, thousands of pipes, nearly 4,000 of them. And we had to voice and tune these pipes. Now, voicing is the incredible thing where you had to really listen so that all of them would have the same harmonic value or not, depending on how you wanted that set of pipes to sound. There is where I learned to listen. And when that happened, I didn't realize what an incredible thing that was going to be in my life. I came into a couple of years on the air. I just loved all that uh, VHF. I had a, a local Motorola dealer, <clears throat> ham friend of mine, and he and another ham friend who was a construction guy, they put up a 110-foot roan. Uh, my parents were so loving. <laughs> they allowed me to do this. Is that at your, uh, in your garden at the back of your house? Yeah, that was on one side of the house. Uh, wow. That's a 36-foot-long Telerex and J-beams from the UK on two yeah. meters. And uh, a year later, I wanted to get a better antenna for two, and there you can see part of the top of the house on the other side. It was a, it was a Victorian, a larger home. And uh, I put up, a, had my friends, my Motorola friend and my contractor friend, two hams. They helped put up a 50-foot tower. There I had two two-meter Telerexes, 36-foot long, 15 elements. One I mounted horizontal, the other I mounted vertical. What I learned from the reading books is that you could run the leads down in the shack and by playing with phasing lines, you could get all kinds of patterns going. That's where I really got in to learning about uh, phasing and all kinds of other things because I've been, I've become a nut for that, for phasing. I still am even to this day. You have extensive experience in ham radio, which is really a dominant theme, which we'll come back to. But just at these early days, um, moving into the 60s, was there ever a chance that you might end up being a musician, maybe playing in a band like the ones you worked with in the 60s? No, no, I always, I never played with anyone. It was always solo with the big theater organs. I, I, I never wanted to play with anyone. The theater organ is an orchestra, and you are the leader of, of that particular right. instrument. I mean, they end up with around 300 stop controls, and they're, they're, it's, it's an incredible instrument. And so, but then in 1959, I wanted more power. I had become the 10th person in the country to build a single sideband rig for six meters. One of my great mentors that I met on the air a couple of weeks after I got my license, he was an, a the chief engineer at CBS radio in St. Louis. And he was such a help to me. He was one of the very first single sideband station. You had to build these things. You couldn't go buy a single sideband transmitter. He taught me how to build. And I, I built a central electronics 10 B from a kit. And I, I had to, 
he, he guided me from things I needed. I bought that uh, kit. I also bought a mill and grid dip meter and build a 36 megacycle oscillator so we can mix that and 14 megs out of the sideband transmitter. We were on six meters. And I didn't realize that I was one of just a few. But I uh, I put that into my uh, my new Johnson 6 and 2 Thunderbolt. That gave me a kilowatt and a half on six and two meters. And it was just incredible with the big antennas and, and the power in single sideband. I was I was really making some some big that, moves in the, that is quite uh, quite impressive, not least the uh, huge antennas which would have made your house stand out and easy to find you when you had visitors. In addition to your particular interest, the timing. This is the late 50s or around about 1957. There was the solar maxima. I'm just wondering to what extent that you're operating at six meters, which helps you cover very long distances. And particularly during a solar maximum, you can cover even longer distances. To what extent do you think that had a role? Why it was popular radio and your interest in it around about the time in the late 50s? I, I had no idea <laughs> that it was anything different. I was kind of silly those first few years figuring, boy, this is going to be great. <clears throat> I'm just going to be able to work the world on six meters forever. No, <laughs> it was the largest sunspot cycle. <clears throat> I got in right at the beginning of it. The peak was somewhere around 1960. That was when I had just built that six and two Thunderbolt. So you can imagine what kind of signal was coming out of this 110-foot roan with these 36-foot-long antennas and the power and single sideband. Uh, it was quite something. At 1959, I got a job. I was out of, out of high school. That was it. High school was in my way. <laughs> I got a job uh, at, at a restaurant in St. Louis. It was a four-star restaurant. Uh, it was a German restaurant. And I built a pipe organ and put it in that restaurant and people would come from all over the country to, to hear it. Cause it was, it was very unique to be able to have a great four-star restaurant and see this pipe organ. I put all the, all of the pipes were behind glass. This was quite something. I played six nights a week. Well, the deal there, was I would get home about midnight. The bands were open all the time. When I tell people this, you know, they think I'm making it up. No, they were just constantly open on the VHF frequencies, not like today. And so I would have a lot of time. I'd get up about, I usually wouldn't go to bed till three, three o'clock in the morning. So I got a lot of time on the radio. I, I'm just amazed when I look through all the logs of thousands of people I talked to. Well, in 1959, I got a call one day from Bob Drake. Bob Drake was the owner and founder of the Drake Radio Company. I'm sure you've heard of that. And he said, we have this uh, ham meeting uh, it was a technical meeting. We do it once a year and we look for technical papers. And we understand that you're one of just a few on single sideband on six meters. And we would like for you to come here and tell us about it. Well, uh, I had a friend of mine who had a Bonanza airplane and we flew out to the Biltmore Hotel in mm -hmm. Dayton, Ohio. 1959. That was the beginning of the Dayton Hamvention. It was held in a, a large hotel downtown Dayton. But I got to meet and speak and, and really spend time with Bob Drake, with Wes Shum, the man that brought single sideband to ham radio. No, it wasn't Art Collins. He was six years late to the party. It was Wes Shum in 1948. And, and, and I just went through all these people's uh, and Carl Mosley from the Mosley plant. Then I walked in this room and it was the J-Beam Company. 
Well, I already had the J-Beam uh, 16 elements. They said, we're looking for somebody like you. Would you like to perform an experiment with one of our large antennas? And yeah, why not? And I had a spare lot beside our home. My, my parents, I said, they were just absolutely angels. They allowed me to do about anything. But I was able to pay for all of this. This wasn't costing them anything because I had quite a career going at the age of 14. Well, they allowed me to do this. And um, so they, the J-Beam company, they shipped over their antenna. Their antenna was a 128-element, two-meter array. And <laughs> it was just unbelievable. The Motorola dealer and the construction contractor, K9SGD and K9EBA, they, again, in this spare lot beside our home, we put up a 40-foot roan, and it was a, we used another 40-foot for the boom and installed all of these antennas. And they all had to have phasing harnesses. They had to be wired correctly. The Motorola dealer knew about all this because he did uh, phasing harnesses and stuff in his Motorola dealership. So I learned a tremendous amount about how the things were in phase and out of phase used two B29 uh, prop pitch motors to turn them and to rotate them to the moon. Now, I didn't know at the time much about moon bounce. Yes, I'd heard about it. You know, it was, yeah, it was going to happen. But I, I, I didn't understand exactly how, how I was going to figure into the moon bounce stuff. And um, I, had, I, I, I had the thing aimed up to the sky one day, and I heard this very weak signal. And I thought, whoa. And it was W5KHT. Well, I quickly grabbed my, my uh, license book, or you could tell where people were, and, and it was Bob Cooper. Well, I got uh, his address from that. Didn't, I couldn't get his telephone number, but I got his address. And what went on there was we started talking about this wonderful antenna I had. And Bob Cooper was a very interesting guy. <clears throat> he was the father of home satellite television. But he was doing moon bounce from his backyard. <clears throat> he had uh, bought an old, several old uh, uh, surplus dishes, <clears throat> and he was building LNAs, low noise amplifiers, in coffee cans, <laughs> and actually building TVRO systems. But <clears throat> he, <clears throat> excuse me, he was using one of them for his ham radio. And he and I did some moon bounce shots with the great 128 element. Well, I got, I just, I can't tell you the feelings when all this was going on. It's like, wow, what are we doing? <clears throat> but Bob and I became <clears throat> pretty, pretty close friends. We're going to come back to him <clears throat> because that was 1962 through 63, four right in there. Well, we're going to come can back. I just to take you. Let just take you back to um, 1957, uh, Bob. Mm -hmm. When that's um, the year of Sputnik, that was the first time there was a radio transmitter in space. Mm -hmm. Did you ever listen into that? I did not. I I did not. Uh, mm -hmm. I really didn't have much interest in all of that uh -huh. until <laughs> when I was playing in the restaurant starting in 1959, it would have been about not, right before I, I met up with Bob Cooper. I had a very interesting thing happen. The restaurant was called Schneidhorst. It was a German restaurant, as I told you. Right. It was right across the street from McDonnell Douglas, where they built the first capsule. 
uh-huh. and uh, in 1959. And about every two months, the seven original astronauts would come, stay in the hotel. That was a large, the restaurant was in a large hotel. They would spend a night having a nice dinner and listening to my organ music. Ah, right. And about the second time they uh, they came, as I said, they came every couple of months. Alan Shepard came up, and I, I'm on on this uh, large theater organ, and uh, it had a, a a pretty large bench, and um, he rolled up, set nucks beside me, and I'm going, whoa. This says Alan Shepard. And he said, hey, he says, I know about all these things. My father had a pipe organ in our home. And he'd wake me up every morning playing that thing. It was pretty loud. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he he knew all about the pipe organ. And we'd spend our time talking about the pipe organ. And on one of the occasions, he took me back to the table. And there's a copy of uh, most of the seven original astronauts uh, signed the menu for me, Walter Schirrah, uh, Shorty Powers, uh, Deke Slayton, uh, and, and so on. It, and, and these were, these were to me, really incredible people, but they were so friendly to me, mm. all very anxious to know how I learned to build that. And uh, I I told them that I learned a lot through ham radio. And uh, Alan asked me, he said, what kind of antennas are you using? I said, well, we have um, a a couple, but one of them, my fave is is the 128 element because I can point it to the moon and bounce signals off the moon. And uh, he said that you can do that. And I said, yes. He said, he said, can we borrow that? And I thought he was kidding. I said, uh, what do you mean? You need to ship this to Houston? No. Do you have a phone patch? And I said, I really do. I do have a phone patch. He said, well, um, hmm. what we'd like to do. Now, you understand this is way before the, they were really getting into some of the space shots. He said, you know, we we know from our calculating that how long it takes the signal and what the delay time is, but we've never been able to test it. The only time we're going to test is when we're up there. He said, if you could take a phone call from us and patch it into your transmitter and point your array at this precise point that we tell you, we could listen for your signal on the phone and count how long it takes to get back to us. And that's exactly what they did. And so now this little kid became a piece of history, I guess. And the only sad part, I I never verified it. I never, I should have recorded it. I didn't yeah. do that. I, I didn't want to tread Upon I to me this was kind of secret, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I didn't want to go blasting this to the world. I didn't tell very many people this. I didn't get so, on the ham radio and say, guess what I did last night? No, it was nobody's business. This was to me very special. Did they ever ask you not to communicate that publicly? Well, they said we we really they didn't really come out yeah. real strong but he said uh we, we really should kind of keep this together and, and I, from that i meant yeah right That's getting true. it keeping yeah. it together and, and this is the early 1960s so yeah quite sensitive so can i just ask just to confirm that i understand what uh, what this experiment was so you had your 128 uh, element antenna at, mm-hmm. uh, next to your house yep. you've got a, a um, a phone call from, I guess, Houston calling you yep. to your house and you piping that a telephone call through your antenna to the moon. Yep. And then the, NASA is picking up the reflection. Is that what we're saying, talking about? 
exactly right. In fact, I still have the phone patch if you'd like right. to see it. <laughs> oh, if yeah, if it's if it's nearby, yeah. Well, and stand I, by. You, stand right. by. I'll be right back. It's one of the things that you you don't use it today, but I can't mm -hmm. throw it away. This is a huge part yeah. of my life. Yeah. It was, right. it was made by the Gonset Company. Right. And it was quite something in those days. Every, every ham had a phone patch just about. And what you would do, you would take the two phone wires, uh -huh. connect them here. Right. You would take the speaker, uh, receiver speaker to the other mm -hmm. uh, connectors. You plug your microphone into here. And you could set the levels and so on. And so then when you would receive a phone call, you had a level control for that. Mm -hmm. But then you had a transmitter control and you had to watch the meter. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, the, when the phone line would come up and you adjust that, it would be tied into your transmitter because you had that plugged in here. So the telephone become the microphone for your yeah. transmitter. In this case, the microphone was in Houston, Texas. <laughs> now, I, I assume that um, you were talking about a, an acoustic coupler, but that is actually no. just an electronic connection. Oh, yeah. Directly. Acoustic is no good. Uh, that, they, yeah. don't sound very, they don't sound and very good. Can I just ask you, whilst you've got it in your hand, that looks remarkably new. How old would that be? Oh, I bought it in 1959. You can. I never know. I didn't thought about this before. Look at that picture real close. Uh -huh. And my nose is right, right in front of my nose oh, is yeah. this right. very piece. Can you, right. can you make that out? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right in front of my nose is yeah. this very piece. I'll be darned. <laughs> does, does he have a name? Uh, is it particularly? Yeah. Particular? Oh, absolutely. The Gonset Company made it. Made it. G O N S E T. They were a big deal, and it right. was called. A, it was a hybrid phone patch. G P P one. Gonset <laughs> phone patch. That's incredible. And it where, just looks so new. Well, all of my equipment does. I never drug it behind my car. I don't know how. It, I see people's gear once in a while on eBay or wherever. Look like they drug it behind their car with a chain. Like, how do they get things so dirty and messed up? <laughs> so just going back to this story, you've done this experiment on behalf of NASA. Did you, did you ever understand why they asked you to do this? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was all about the delay time. Mm -hmm. They right. they had figured it out about with equations mm -hmm. about the distance, but they right. just wanted to make sure. Right. And, and this was an opportune time for them to do that. And do you remember the uh, date when you did that experiment? I don't. I'd have to look back. Yeah, it would have been in 61 or 2. Right. Now, bearing in mind that it is 1961 or 2, NASA would have had these huge dishes. They could quite easily, I would have thought, been able to do that kind of experiment directly without involving you. That's something I never did understand, but I, I thought maybe they were doing something else or trying to, <laughs> trying to look at it from another location. Right. And once you completed that experiment uh, with, uh, with NASA, um, did, uh, did you have further exchanges with either and some of the astronauts or indeed with uh, other? No, uh, no, NASA I did personnel? not. No, they uh, <laughs> once they got really rocking and rolling, they never came to the restaurant. Or to the That's a fascinating story. And did you ever get uh, uh, interested in listening to transmissions, audio transmissions from crude spacecraft during the 1960s, the Mercury, Gemini, oh, yeah. and Apollo series. Yeah, yeah when uh, Owen Garrett, Garrett went up, uh, he was the first ham uh, that went uh, went up. Uh, I, uh, I worked a deal with this school, 
a local school. We had the whole school out. We set up antennas in the parking lot and all that. And we uh, we worked. Owen. Oh, and <clears throat> it was a fascinating time for those children. And as it was for me, too. And um, yeah. I got I got the QSL card somewhere around here from right. that. It's all, you know, this is all history, but it paid such a played such a huge part of my life. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, you didn't go to college. You didn't. I didn't know this. This was my college. Ham radio was my college. And, and I think uh, despite the fact that NASA could have done it without you, the fact that you were involved, I think is such an exciting activity and a fascinating story. Let me um, take you back uh, to, you mentioned Bell Labs. Mm -hmm. Now, Bell Labs was a phenomenal uh, enterprise. I only came across their work because of people like Carl Jansky, who introduced radio astronomy back in the 1930s, and the work that two Bell Lab employees, Pantheus and Wilson, I think they were, who discovered the cosmic background radiation and eventually got Nobel Prizes for them. What was your interaction with Bell Labs and what role did they play in your career? Well, that was after I got a, a call from Paul Klipsch. Paul Klipsch was the father of the folded horn. He was really the one of the leaders in the hi-fi movement. And he had called me one day because there was a, at that time was a lot of, lot of things written uh, about my large PA systems and all of that. Uh, and I should say a couple of things about the TVRO industry before we leave this, if you'd like for me to do that. Oh, yes, please. Bob Cooper, again, <clears throat> back, as I told you, uh, we did the moon bounce stuff together, but I hadn't heard from him in many years. And in 19, it would have been 77 or so, I saw him on a national television and he had a little six foot dish and he was talking about being able to pick up uh, television by satellite. And uh -huh. that, wait a minute, that's Cooper. Well, I did have his phone number then, so I called him and it went nuts. Bob Cooper was holding classes in his backyard to teach who wanted to come. Most of them, you know, they only had like 10 or 12, were hams or TV dealers. And he, he showed us how to build an LNA low noise amplifier in a, coal, a Folgers coffee can. We could get surplus dishes from the government. He started watching them in Oklahoma. <laughs> he called in New York one day and he said, I need to probably tell you people, I'm picking your signal up really good here in Oklahoma. And I said, well, that's not possible. Well, it is possible here. And he held the phone up and, uh, 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 oh, how's he doing this? And they never realized that it was going to be a big deal. To them, they were only using satellite to go between cable companies, and they didn't realize it was going to be a, a thing for all Americans or all uh, Englishmen, anybody in the world. You could pick these things up. Well, I really got involved in satellite television. I put up thousands of dishes because in the state of Illinois, in the, uh, back in the southern half of Illinois, there were there were no large cities. St. Louis was it, Paducah, Kentucky, or Terre Haute, Indiana. Well, those are all hundreds of miles away. So there were a lot of people in 1975, 8, 9, they had no, no television. And I say that to people in a year for, no, think about it. They, it, the only way they got it would be to put up like a 100, 150 foot tower to receive from the major stations. Mm -hmm. And I, they would hire me to go to the uh, Consumer Electronics Show, uh, NAB, National Association of Broadcasters. They would hire me to, to attend those and teach people how to find the satellite and build these satellite systems. And... <laughs> I had got 
a contact at one of those uh, shows, the Hubbard family, Stanley Hubbard. He was a grandson of the patriarch. They're really broadcast industry giants. But he uh, he said, I need you to come to Minneapolis. He said, we are working on something and I'd like for you to be a part of it. He had just spent $60 million and bought a license. Now, this is 1985 when he bought the license mm-hmm. for the first K-band satellite signal. And because he was the first one to put the money up, he could pick where in the arc he wanted to be. Guess where it's going to be? Dead south. So he could cover both coasts of America. Mm-hmm. And he had this idea that he could have me- much smaller dishes. It's four times higher in frequency. The dish is not going to be 10 foot or eight foot. It's going to be two foot. And he had me become one of his test stations. He had about 10 of us around the country. In 1991, that was four years before DirecTV started. It was on the air. We were doing test shots. He would send, they would send signals to me, and I would tell him on the phone what the signals were. Well, in 1994, again, I, w- I went on ABC television in America to tell them it's here. We were at the Consumer Electronics Show floor in 1994, and that started the big run. For me, we, in the uh, vice president of DirecTV, came to my place and we installed the very first DirecTV system in a home in St. Louis. And um, that's a picture of our present day plant, but they had shipped in the large inflatables for nipper and chipper, the <laughs> logos of uh, RCA, sold thousands of, of uh, K-Band uh, DirecTV out of that. I mean, I was getting a lot of recognition uh, across America in several avenues. But then one day I got a call. The call was from Paul Klipsch. Paul Klipsch, he was the he was the king. He was and one of the things he guided me to was what they call the idea factory of the 1920s. Bell Labs was a consolidation of AT&T and Western Electric. And Western was the manufacturing arm of the Bell system. They had put 4,000 scientists and engineers that were assigned to this newly created Bell Telephone Lab. They were fully dedicated to researching how the human ear worked and what audio frequencies were most important to understand the spoken word. Why did they have to put these 4,000 scientists in? What was that about, huh? Well, it was pretty simple. When they started the telephone company, they ran two wires from New Jersey to the West Coast. Every 50 miles, they put a relay station up so that the frequency would come up. The level would come up. The voltage was, everything was very, very linear. No problem. But what happened when they turned the telephone system on, they didn't hear this flat response. And I can easily demonstrate what happened. When they first turned it on, this is what they heard. Oh, there, there was no articulation. It's like, hmm, what, what happened to all of it? it? It was all mushy and bassy. There was no, no articulation. What happened? The essence of sound was simply struck away. The F and the S, the P and the B. Well, what, what, ha- what were we going to do? And so what they did was they called upon their two experts of the 4,000. There were two guys that were the leads, 
And these two guys were Dr. Harvey Fletcher and Dr. Weldon Munson. And I would hope that most people knew about Fletcher Munson. They started a study of the human ear. And it was quite remarkable what they discovered. Our ears are not flat. And up at about 100, 110 dB, they're almost flat at that level. And it's really loud. That's why kids like to listen to their music real loud. They get to hear the bass. They get to hear the vocal mid-range. They get to hear the cymbals. But down at 10 or 20 dB, where we're listening right now, uh-uh, looks like a ride at Disneyland. So the scientist and Fletcher Munson, they figured it out. There was one particular thing that had to happen. First of all, the telephone company is from 300 to 3,500. But if it was flat, that didn't make it, as we, heard, as we just heard. They discovered that 2.5K is the magic. And I'll demonstrate that very easily. I'm going to take everything flat. This is the way it's flat. And it, it just, it has no life. The F and the S, the, the, the whole essence of sound is not, it, it's not very good. So what I'm going to do, I'm not doing anything except one control. When I bring up 2.5K, listen. Remember what I said about listening earlier? You got to dissect. You really got to dig into what you hear. Here we go. One, two, three, four. And when we get up to here, now we have some real essence of sound. It's simply stunning how much we can understand with 2.5 in a rise of about 5 to 6 dB. I'll take it back again. And now the essence of sound is gone. It's simply not there. I'll bring it back. When I bring it back, you know exactly when I did that. And so from there, oh my, <laughs> everything in my, in my whole thought process, it, it, it was changed because we discovered that it was all about speech articulation. But how are you going to correct that? They had no equalizers. They had none. They just did what they did, and that was it. They, they had no what we call today equalizers. The term equalizer was born, and they did it by this. They had to do it passively. They came in with the signal that was all flat, muffled, and they put a capacitor in series to the output. But at that same time at the output, they go to resistor to ground. The value of the capacitor and the resistor gave us a high pass filter and rolled off some of the lows. And so we could, we could build some type of a structure that would give us better speech articulation because those 4,000 scientists discovered we have to have 2.5K rise. They also built a low-pass filter, which was the reverse. The signal would come in flat, go through a resistor on the way to the output. But at that output and resistor junction, they had a cap to ground, which would take all the highs to ground. And depending on the size of the capacitor and resistor, they could make it happen. Well, in 1920s late, there was this young man. His name was John Volkman. He was working at RCA. In the late 20s, the cinema houses we're beginning to have talkies. And so now they needed some way to get that equalization to the motion picture playback systems up. How did he do it? Well, from studying what the Bell Lab guys found out, he was using passive RC filters for different values 
and he built a very crude switching network, built a few low-pass filters, all different frequencies, and a few high-pass. And by switching these in and out, he could select which ones he wanted. Now, they weren't like we have today. He was just after those one, that particular one filter. And that's what happened when equalization was kind of born. I'd been well, off air all those years, and I just, I was dedicated to that thing. Fascinating insight, uh, the story you tell about the phone connection from one coast to the other, and finding through that Bell um, Labs research from Fletcher and Munson, the sweet spot of the 2.5K. Mm -hmm. And I guess that kind of knowledge is incorporated in modern radios through some of the work that you've done in uh, for amateur radios today. Well, I'd been off the air for 12 years. I'd come back to ham radio. And this is what I heard. Stuff like that. CQ, 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 field day, CQ, field day, CQ, field day, CQ, field day. I couldn't believe the, the crap that was out there. Like, what happened? There's one that had it right. He, but that was the minority. Listen, how copy three alpha Sierra Delta. And I'm going. What is the problem? What's going on here? Well, I started researching all these new transmitters coming from offshore. Kenwood, ICOM, Yesu. I never heard of them. I've been off the air. <laughs> so I bought one of them. You know, this thing's terrible. Audio's terrible. So in 1982, I built the first equalizer that ham radio had ever seen. I didn't know that. I figured somebody had to do it. A little simple two band. And I set the filters at 160 and 2.5K. The user could increase or decrease, boost or cut 160. So you want to cut that low end and boost the heck out of the 2.5. I wrote an article in 1982. It was published by the ARRL and QST, July 1982. After they received the article, they called me back and said, this is a revelation. This has never been done before. We don't have equalization. It was the lead article, got the cover award for that July 1982. And I, I, had, I had built this or written this article as a do-it-yourself. Guys didn't want to build it. They wanted to buy it. They want it now, right now. So I hired two of my good solder gals back. And we started building equalizers. And it, it was really something. It took off like crazy. But in um, 1999, I got a letter from Dr. Inouye. ICOM, Inouye Communications. He had a picture of his station. And it had one of my equalizers and one of my gold line dynamic mic. I'm thinking of new radio line, and I just want to check because I want to use your EQ200 circuit. So anything from the Pro 1, Pro 2, Pro 3, all the way through the ICOM line to the new little 705, the 7300, the 7610, they all have the two-band EQ200. And that's really all you kind of need. And uh, Yesu came to me uh, a year later. Dr. Hasegawa came to me, came into my booth at Dayton. I want to do it better. <laughs> oh, what, what are we talking about? I want to do that EQ thing better. So, well, we could do a parametric. Ah, that'd be good. Ah, not so fast. What'd be the problem? So the problem is education. What do you mean? Well, you know, with this simple little EQ 200 and in the ICOM, I did 
the selection of the frequencies after hundreds and hundreds of playing on the air and a year of just researching it. That's where they should be. With a parametric, you don't have two controls. You have nine. <laughs> and so we have to educate. Oh, I do. Well, they didn't. Uh, the first uh, Yesu was the great 9,000. What an incredible transceiver that was. It has really got my way on that one because I've always said these transmitters needed to have balanced line inputs. The XLR is your broadcast connector. It's balanced line, ground, plus, and minus. That's in the front panel of the 9000. I got my way. They did it. They also did one other thing I wanted. How do you set your mic game? Oh, you just get on the air and ask Joe if he's, if it heard me better here. No, you are the engineer. You should never transmit a signal unless you know exactly what it's going to sound like before you hit the transmit button. And how you do that, you watch the ALC meeting. So in the 9,000, there is no ALC meter. It says mic gain. They all should say mic gain. And it's really interesting that um, it's called an equalizer because when it's working at its best, it's actually unequal in terms of the spectrum over which it's operating. That's a fascinating story that you brought us bang up to date with modern ICOM radios, Bob. And, and Yesu, uh, and Ken and, Wood, and <laughs> Ellicraft, they all followed suit. <laughs> ah, fascinating story of all the things that, that uh, you mentioned today, and we only touched this to some of them, is the names of the people you mentioned. And a lot of these people you know personally, and you mentioned things like uh, Dolby, uh, Klippisch, Fletcher, Manson, Volkman. It's fascinating um, to have somebody who's met and worked with many of these guys. Given your experience of uh, being uh, supporting live performances on stage and your wireless knowledge through amateur radio, when and did you, were you involved in the introduction of uh, wireless microphones for performance on live stage? I was not. Uh, the situation is that there were a couple of companies that that had really researched and it, it, it was really tough for them to get the proper license. And I, I didn't want to go through all of that. I turn uh -huh. up the big theater organ, I'll play a couple minutes for you. That was lovely, Bob. Thank you very much, and good evening. Okay, thank you. Hope that worked okay. <laughs>